left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I think the reason why one should consider adding it is if you're a fan of passive income and you're a fan of investing in the future of what we would call this as an emerging asset class, then I think this is up for consideration in, in most portfolios. I think what we see in really our thesis is our investment strategy revolves around drivable destinations from major metros. We're taking advantage of really what is a permanent change in behavior post-pandemic, which is not only remote work, but flexible living, flexible lifestyle, flexible traveling. And the data suggests that the best time to invest is pre-institutional demand. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? (laughs) Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm really excited today to have Seif Kafagi with me. He's the founder of TechVestor, a company that helps people passively invest in short-term rentals with a focus on higher cash flow and lifestyle by design. Seif, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm excited. I had a pleasure of a meeting at Chad over at the Best Ever Conference a little while ago, and we had a good time to catch up. Yeah, I'm glad you met Chad, and I'm glad you got a little bit of the uh, left field flavor. Um, The way we start out this podcast is I just like to hear your financial journey. How did you get into real estate? How did you find STRs? And then why? How did you start TechVestor? And what's the whole point of it, I guess? So if you can kind of just give us your overview, that would be fantastic. Yeah, like many people living in California, I was making a decent amount of money working in tech. I spent about five years working at Facebook. And, you know, my rent at the time was 1300 bucks in a house full of other techies without much expenses and, you know, making a decent income. And I looked to offset some taxes. Naturally, real estate was away and I became an LP in a few deals and saw the benefit of real estate. And naturally, in my job, 
while I was at Facebook, we traveled quite a bit to open up new offices. As we were scaling, it was like one of those biggest times of infrastructure growth for Facebook and just the, the growth quarter over quarter of headcount was massive. And when you open up a new office, it's not you're in that city for a day and interviewing a few people. It's Okay, where are these people going to sleep? Where are they going to eat? Where are their kids going to go to school? Because you're opening up a new office, a place where you have to attract a lot of great talent. And so we'd stay in a few Airbnbs from time to time. And can't tell you how many times those Airbnbs were a pretty poor experience to begin with. And I'd eventually meet Sabrina, who's my co-founder today, as well as Sam Silverman, who's our third general partner. And we kind of came together and we've all had these really experiences with Airbnb over the years. And we've had great ones too, don't get me wrong. But we're like, why has no one really scaled this as an asset class? We actually started as a software company that would help other people find short-term rentals. And uh, people really loved the product, but it wasn't sticky enough for software. You find a product or you find a property and you no longer need the software. So then we pivoted into maybe it needs to be operating software, but no one really wants to do the work of operating short-term rentals anyway. That's why a lot of them hire property managers. But as we learn more and more about the industry and have owned and operated our own in the past, what we really learned is that property managers are incentivized by revenue and not profits. And the second problem are homeowners who are emotionally attached to their homes in terms of the decisions that they want that home to operate in and the design and how, and how it runs. So we pivoted and some of our early clients, we were on an early Zoom and we were kind of doing like a, like a case study call and everyone was pointing to everyone's other property as if like the grass was, on the, was greener on the other side. And what they were describing was a syndication. They were describing, ah, I wish I owned a little bit of that one, a little bit of that one, and a portfolio-wide one. So we said, well, why don't we roll them all together into a portfolio? We'll run and operate it and then drive passive returns. Every single one of them loved it. They all signed up for it. And then we went viral in the Slack community, I think it was, or some other community. And within the next 30 days, we raised our first $7 million. And then that first year, we'd go on to raise a little over $37 million from investors. And I think that's really when we felt like we had really hit a nerve of what really what we were intending to do, which is offer a passive opportunity to invest in short-term rentals. And of course, we'd go on to operate and build our operating company and scale and drive revenue. But in short, that's the journey of coming together for Techvestor in the beginnings. In the beginnings. Yeah, that's super interesting how it got started. I'm always interested in that. But the fact that you kind of had this path. And it's kind of like how left field investors got started, right? It wasn't intentional. We knew we wanted to be in real estate. We wanted to be passive investors, but how do we get that all formulated? And and it just kind of happened. And it sounds like it's the same for you. That's how you came up with the idea for TechVestor. But talk a little bit about how does TechVestor work as far as how do the properties get in there, who finds them, and just the overall view. And then I want to dive into STRs as an asset class. But let's start with what's the setup for TechVestor? Yeah. So like most other syndications, with us, you can invest and we do the rest as the saying goes. And yes, that's trademarked. But in short, you can invest with as little as a $25,000 check or through several partners of ours who work with us. And we find, identify, design, operate, and will eventually disposition that property. And when you invest your shareholder in not one property, but a portfolio of them across markets, towns, seasons, geographies, and that's really important with the seasonality of short-term rentals. As you might imagine, there's high seasons and low seasons, and it's important that we have that blended case. We have a PropCo OpCo model. And really what that means is you're investing in an LLC where you're a partner, you're getting all the same tax benefits of direct ownership and pass-through benefits and cash flow and equity growth. 
And then our operating company is vertically integrated with property management, revenue management, and really it's the leading infrastructure for short-term rentals. And ironically, when we first started, we assumed we would just hire out, right? Like just focus on the acquisition software that we have to identify the property. And we were going to hire out all the big boys and just give them all the work. And we tried. They couldn't keep up with our scale and our demand for quality of product. And in fact, they would eventually pivot and not offer those services anymore. So we were actually forced to build our own operating company in order to actually serve our property company, to serve our investor base. And that was a really exciting time for us. And I think it's proved out really well today. We drive about 71% more revenue than the, the comparable properties in our market. So that's a little bit of the platform. It's a little bit about what you get. We send out quarterly distributions. We've never had a capital call. In fact, in our doc, we can never ask you for one. I think that's important for people to think about in today's world. And our debt is all fixed for 10 to 30 years on average, depending on, on each property. So we're never for sellers at the five-year hold. And we're, it's a cash flow play where everything we do is optimized for yield as our number one strategy. And following up with that is going to be equity growth. But we are predominantly optimizing for cash growth. That was a good overview of how you operate. And I want to dig in. I have some specific questions. I'd like to dig in to that in a minute. But first, I want to step back and talk about short-term rentals as an asset class. There's a few asset classes out there that, that are kind of new and forming. And I think STRs is one of those that has been difficult to figure out how to do it passively. So can you talk about short-term rentals as an asset class, why investors should consider having some of that in their portfolio, and then how it can be done effectively in a passive way with the different properties? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why one should consider adding it is if you're a fan of passive income and you're a fan of investing in the future of what we would call this as an emerging asset class, then I think this is up for consideration in, in most portfolios. I think what we see in really our thesis, right, is our investment strategy revolves around drivable destinations from major metros. We're taking advantage of really what is a permanent change in behavior post-pandemic, which is not only remote work, but flexible living, flexible lifestyle, flexible traveling. And the data suggests that the best time to invest is pre-institutional demand. You saw this with single families, which have been all the rage over the last couple of years. You saw this with built to rent. You saw this with storage in the 90s. And we believe history rhymes in many ways. And so for us, especially with the conversations that we've had with the institutions, they really, really like this asset class because of the cash flow that it spits off comparative to the, their other asset classes that they invest in, the issue becomes they don't want to go do the work because it doesn't make sense for them to do that. What they want to do is they want to spend half a billion dollars buying them, stabilize and operate them in-house and generate that yield. But it doesn't make sense for them to put in that sweat equity to build it, which is exactly what we do. And we're manufacturing that equity gain and manufacturing that alpha between our LPs and eventually that disposition to investors. So all those being said, where there's clear demand on both the retail and institutional level, it's hard to do at scale. Like no, if you want to go today, buy 100 short-term rentals, you couldn't do it, right? You couldn't go there and invest, forget passively, just buy 100 anywhere. Couldn't do it. Um, it would take you a long amount of time. And then to do it passively, you know, for us, it was about building technology. We have an incredibly talented team, in my opinion, the best team in the space to run and operate everyone think from Vacasa to DR Horton to X-Tech. And you really want to be able to trust the operator to drive a specific strategy, which is cash flow growth. And the third most important thing that we think we look at in this investment is oftentimes, and I touched on this earlier, is property management companies traditionally and owners are not incentivized the same way. Property management companies want to drive top line revenue. Owners want profitability. 
Those are not the same thing. And there's no vertically integrated solution out there today outside of our own. And that's why we built our operating company or one of several reasons that we did. So those are a lot of reasons why we're incredibly excited about this in addition to the technology advancements that we have. Talk about that, the vertical integration. How does the property management work? I get how a property manager goes to a 200-unit apartment and manages the property. I even understand if you have 10 properties in Columbus, Ohio, how a property manager would manage those. Now, one thing, are you looking at more vacation stuff? Are you looking at business travel? So that's one question. The other question is, how do you manage all these properties? I assume they're in very different places. Yeah, so we're in, I think, 10 to 12 markets today off the top of my head and several going live soon. We are in both destination markets, your beaches, your mountain, those type towns. And we are also in major metros, right? Like think like a Scottsdale or at least what I call a major metro. We're not in like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York. It wouldn't make sense to invest there anyway. And there's regulatory risk of investing there as well. Technology is the first thing of how you manage those very well. Airbnb is built to be for self-made check-in. There's technology on the doors, there's noise sensors, there's all those types of things, there's cameras. It's inherently part of the STR culture to automatically check yourself in. There's no one waiting there for you. And we actually build local teams. For us, it makes a lot of sense to do what we do because we have scale. In Scottsdale, if I own 30 homes, I own the entire infrastructure, right? I can hire the best cleaners, I can give them consistent work, and I can do it at a cheaper cost than anyone else because those cleaners, for example, are cleaning our homes you know, if we're occupied 70% of the month, that's 21 nights out of the month times 30 homes, they're getting 600 nights of that month booked, of which let's say the average stay is three days, that's 200 cleans and turns in that month. Not many other people can give them that element of scale, right? But gives us the opportunity to hire the best, retain the best vendors, have the best relationships. And it starts with a lot of great technology. We have general managers on our team, we have eyes on our properties. But a lot of this is done virtually and everything that can happen behind a computer screen, think pricing, revenue management, guest communication, we handle in-house and anything that needs a hammer to be quote hammered in or cleaning, you hire the best local contractors to do those on a 1099 basis. Okay. So the cleaning seems like it would be easier to me because it's regular. You know, when something needs to be cleaned, someone's checking out and you know that well in advance, right? You know, when they're leaving, but if something breaks down, like the TV doesn't work or the toilet floods or something like that. How do you manage that? Because you have to have people on standby, right? That are ready to go at any time, but you might not need them for months. And then all of a sudden you need them for hours in a day. So how do you manage that just with technology? Well, I think the first thing is that's where scale matters. Like if you go back to the example of having 30 properties in Scottsdale, the the chances of that happening on a daily basis is a lot higher than if it was to happen if you just own one property. And that's really where that infrastructure begins. Um, speaking of technology, we built our own property management infrastructure that allows us, you know, our guests can submit tickets and call us in 24-7 and text us. And so anything those things happen, they get automatically funneled in within a five-minute response time and we have a solution coming to them um, in some sort of capacity. And if it's something that's outside of our hands or their hands, then of course we make it right. There are things that are, of course, that are outside of our hands at times, like weather permit, those types of things. But we typically are checking those things also during cleans. So a turn in the SDR industry is not just clean the place. Is the silverware there? You got to reset the everything up for the next guest. Turn the TV on. Is the internet working? All of these types of things are naturally checked through a dozen, dozen, dozens on dozens on dozens above a length of a checklist, really, that goes down in every single turn. And it's really ironed out. The cool thing, too, is about... Three months after the property launches, things get quite quiet because most of the things that go wrong 
happen within those first 90 days because you catch them. You catch them and you're like, ah, okay, that was missed somewhere or we got to improve that. And you therefore you, you create a solution. Um, and our property management team is robust enough to handle that. Okay. So well, I, have a, I have a bunch of questions. I'm getting lost in them. The scaling seems like that's the most important part of this, right? Because you got to get to the point where you have all of those properties. So do you have separate funds? Like you go out and get 30 properties, you offer that to as a syndication, then you do it again with another 30, and then you operate all of those under TechVestor. So that's the scale. Because how do you avoid, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but how do you avoid commingling funds from one deal into the next while also getting to that scale? And I think scale seems like it's one of the most important parts of this. Is that accurate? Yeah. So we're today we're on our second fund and there's no commingling because really money goes towards the assets and servicing those assets and everything. We have property level accounting in very hard separate ways between funds. Today we're on our second fund and we're actively accepting capital for that one from accredited investors. But the benefit actually is scale gets easier over time because that same infrastructure that you built for fund one, remember, we have a model of a prop cone and an opco. So there's no funds being used from the same prop goes. Everything is operated through our opco, which now through separate funds, those costs are actually absorbed across multiple ways. And the risk of scale goes down over time because now fund two is leaning on the success and scale of fund one. Fund three is leaning on the success of fund one and fund two. And it really allows us the, that ability to not depend on having one or two properties and starting from scratch every single time. Not to mention, we become a first person aggregator of data. I can tell you now that in Scottsdale, on average, we have six tickets a month for this type of problem because we've seen it happen over two years and therefore we know how to address it. When you're just starting out, you're more so catching up than ever staying in advance of those types of things. So everything we do is data-driven and tracked on our property management side. How do you find properties? Are you finding already existing Airbnbs, buying them from the single, what they call the mom and pop, you know, who has one or two locations? Or are you finding just new property, not new, newly built, but properties that aren't Airbnbs yet and converting them? So 99% of the time we're buying not existing short-term rentals. So they have been a long-term rental. They've been someone's home. We're buying them on the open market and we are converting them to a short-term rental. And that's by design. And the reason for that is our strategy is very simple on the financial side, is we believe single family homes are mispriced assets. And that's because we see the revenue of them as a short-term rental while the world does not. So I can buy a single family home for $500,000 based on its comps and appraisals, based on what the house next door sold for, for lack of a better word. And as a long-term rental, that's going to generate $50,000 a year in revenue because that's what the rents will tell you. Now, I can take that $500,000 home, buy it at $500,000 and generate $125,000 on it as a short-term rental and then sell that as a mini business as part of a portfolio or individually based on that property's revenue because both of us can sit here and agree that two properties sitting side by side that look identical, but one is doing $125,000 in revenue and one is doing fifty dollars are not treated the same. One is significantly worth more than the other. So that's a huge reason why we don't buy existing short-term rentals. And the few that we have have been opportunistic. A fun little case study on this one is we bought a existing short-term rental that had three tracking years of about $140,000 a year in revenue. Hadn't really gone up or gone down too much. We came in, did our design, did our operations, did our thing in short, and it just wrapped up its first year, cleared 210. Now you're like, what's the difference? 
That's exactly why we believe in this industry, because 99% of the time we're competing against mom and pops, people who don't understand design, they don't understand hospitality, they don't understand operations, they don't understand management. And that's fine. You don't expect them to. They have a full-time job, families, all these types of things, or it's their second home where they're not looking at it like a business. That's where we come in and we generate these great returns because we're looking at it and operating it in a completely different way. That's super interesting because you found a niche, like a competitive advantage or an arbitrage situation where you're buying something that's priced as a single family home based on comps, but then you buy it and you put a completely different use to it that has nothing to do with how you bought it. And usually when when you find something like that, like you just want to jump in and capitalize, right? Because there's a huge amount of money to be made, but then eventually that advantage goes away. But it seems like in this space, that advantage Maybe it won't go away because people are always going to be buying single family homes on comps because mostly they buy them to live in. So you're always going to have this advantage. Is that correct? That's correct. And to be fair to even ourselves, I think someone else could have that same advantage as we do. I think it's a market advantage for what we do. What makes us different is our speed, our ability to scale, our technology, our team, our vertically integrated operating model. And naturally, it's first to market. If we're doing this and we can go do 35, 50, 75 homes a quarter, we're naturally going to aggregate a larger portfolio that will sell for a larger multiple than the guy who's doing one every six months. And so there are advantages in the market. I think that's available. Just It's an open market where anyone can go do this. But the question is, can you build enough of an infrastructure of scale to where the economies of scale start to benefit you? And that's where that's where we're in. And that's really the whole benefit of a syndication. In fact, one would argue that's the benefit of left field itself, right? Is the aggregation of information, the aggregation of capital. You guys negotiate better terms in general for your investors because you're investing as a community. All of those same mentalities are the same exact mentalities we employ as well. Yeah, that's great. And so you mentioned as one of the first advantages you had is speed. So speed at what? At closing the deal when you're finding a house? Can you talk about the process? Like, what do you mean by speed? And then also, how do you find these properties? Yeah, I mean, I'll start from the top, right? Speed on capital, access to capital, speed on renovation and design, and speed on launching them, right? And optimizing them. But in short, one of our advantages is when we first started, if you go back to the story, we started as a software company. Now, what was that software? Our software allows us to underwrite over 100,000 properties a month. We're currently market mapping over 257 local markets. And what that really means is as soon as the property CMLS, we know about it within 15 seconds. We know about it in terms of the data that we believe it will yield in the short term rental. We can underwrite it in several different ways. And 94% of the time, the deal sucks. So, our head of acquisition and our humans, because we're not iBuyers, we are a real estate company that builds technology, not a technology company that does real estate. So our head of acquisition can sit there and window shop, for lack of a better word, the best possible properties to buy. We already have local markets, and we also understand real estate supply, meaning I can tell you in, I'm going to use Scottsdale as an example, I can tell you in Scottsdale, there are typically about two or three submarkets within the major Scottsdale metro that we buy predominantly in four bedrooms or larger homes with pools on a certain acreage of a size that has to have certain characteristics in the home with certain amenities according to data that allows us to drive the most revenue. So that speed of understanding and having access to that information allows us to drive significant value to investors and shareholders because we know what to buy, we know where to buy it, and we can actually execute it. Not only are we gathering this data directly ourselves, 
but Scott Shatford, Jamie Lane, both from AirDNA, they both sit on our board, right? We have great access to data and partners who, you know, provide significant levels of information to us as well, um, among other ones. But those are really big reasons why we can move quickly, what to buy. And we also become aggregators of data ourselves, right? If we own 30 in Scottsdale, and using that as an example, I can tell you what's doing well, what's not doing well. I can tell you why they're doing well and why they're not doing well, and we can replicate it. And no one else has access to our data. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Recession resilient are two words that are heard often when discussing investing in mobile home parks and self-storage. But what does that really mean? And what happens if there's not a recession? At Crystal View Capital, we are vertically integrated and have over 150 employees focusing on assuring our assets perform daily, regardless of market conditions. With over $85 million in distributions paid to investors since 2014, we focus on downside protection, upside maximization, and all the hard work in between. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about our current offerings, please visit crystalviewcapital.com or click the link in the show notes. So tell me your acquisition person. They get up in the morning and there's two properties that hit all your metrics. They look at them, they say, yep, this is it. These are great properties. Do you go visit them or do you just buy it and hope everything was right in the MLS? I mean, I know it's probably more than that, but do you visit the properties and, and walk through them before you buy them? We definitely vet all data. So to be clear, we're never eye-buying or making decisions just off of what our software tells us to do. So if that software tells us, hey, this data looks good, Taylor, who's our head of acquisitions, will sit down and actually manually underwrite it. He'll vet it. He'll make sure it's zoned accurately. Permitting isn't going to be a problem. There are things that software can't vet for. He'll look at Google Street View. We have significant agents relationship, agent relationships in these markets. So we'll go get videos and all these things. But the fun thing here, Jim, is like once you've walked the Clearwater property 35 times or generally in that market, you know what you're looking for. And also our agents know exactly what we're looking for because we're volume buyers with them. And while we do have boots on the ground in every market, we do visit them either virtually and use technology or in person before we buy them. We're not just buying them blind off of software. Okay. And what's the debt on these? How much leverage do you use? And is it per property? And how do you do that? Just explain what the debt process is, I guess. Yeah, our debt is actually one of our biggest competitive advantages. So first and foremost, we're using a DSCR product. So that stands for debt service coverage ratio. And more importantly, each property is its own loan. And no, we have no cross collateralization. And the reason that's important is, as the analogy says, we can lose a pinky and we'll be fine. No one wants to lose a pinky. But if we ever did lose a pinky, we would be okay. Um, we're typically using anywhere from 70 to 80 LTV in that general range. We're spending a good amount of money on renovation and design, adding a ton of value. Our average DSCR is about a 3x 
and that's compared to multi and those types of things. But more importantly, we have strategic debt terms with our partners where they're actually underwriting our homes as short-term rentals. So properties DSCR for us that would not actually underwrite for someone else because they don't have our institutional track record. They don't have our institutional type backing and they haven't proven themselves as operators in the space. Not to mention we get a little bit of a preference on rate and those types of things on the same type of deal that you would go get from the same type of lender. So all of those things being said, those are competitive advantages that our LPs benefit from as being investors in the fund without, of course, any of the liability of taking out the debt. And are you getting a fixed rate debt? Is it okay? So it is fixed rate. That's good. A hundred percent of our debt is fixed for at least a decade or longer. And you might ask, why do you care about 10 years more when it's projected to be a five year hold? The short answer is we never want to be forced sellers, right? Our best case scenario is a two and a half to three X realistic scenario over a five year period as in terms of our equity multiple. And our bear case scenario is a 10 year hold where we generate a 11 to 14 IRR because we end up operating for cash flow. We sell based on values, not revenue, since we're talking about bear case, which is exactly how single families trade today. And we generate an 11 to 14 IRR. And if you ask me, I'm okay with that as a bear case. And if that's our bear case, then of course, it's relative to whatever's going on in the world. Right. So then what's the projected upside on this? When you sell, are you are you trying to but you know, you're in, you, I think you said you're on fund two or three. Let's say you do five or six funds. Are you going to package all those up and sell them for half a billion dollars to an institutional player? Is that the goal? And if so, do the investors get the upside as well? So we don't know if, in that, if people will buy funds collectively and aggregate, but that's certainly an opportunity. Each time we launch a new fund and a new portfolio, it strengthens the entire narrative and the entire journey, right, for everybody. So it's actually a great thing. In fact, we see a lot of repeat investors and funds and funds and funds over. The idea is to sell based on revenue. So sell some sort of exit cap rate, for lack of a better word, and someone will value it based on revenue because that's how revenue generating businesses and revenue generating real estate is, is, is sold. And I'm sorry if I missed your second question. My other question was, what is the upside and does the investor participate if you sell to a REIT or institutional or something like that? Yeah. So look, we underwrite for an average of somewhere in that 8 to 12% average year on your, especially at full stabilization. We're looking at generally in that 2x equity multiple over time. And absolutely, our LPs are generating the upside, right? So we have anywhere between an 8 pref and a 9 pref for the most part across our funds. And of course, some sort of split on promote depending on their check size, but they benefit in everything, whether it's the cash flow, the tax benefits, the equity upside, investors have shares in everything. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I'd like to like to switch a little bit and talk more about kind of from the investor perspective, because we compare everything to multifamily because that's what most of us start on. In multifamily, we know how to vet the opera. We know how to analyze the, the investment. So how does an investor vet tech investor? Like what questions should we be asking an operator of Airbnb properties or short-term rentals? What are we asking you to make sure that you're doing? I know we've talked a lot about that and you've proven it already, but when we vet an operator, what do we ask in this asset class? I think the first thing you want to look at, and we have a saying internally, and it goes team, technology, and traction. And I think the reason those three are really critical here is because when you're investing in, at least with us, in short-term rentals, it's an emerging asset class that's not as mature as multifamily, right? We can all agree that. So the first thing you want to look at is this team capable, right? Because real estate is not hard. It's operators who make bad decisions oftentimes, whether it's taking out bad debt or making bad poor decisions. 
So our team is incredibly strong, right? We have our head of asset management comes from Vacasa, our head of operations comes from DR Horton, ex-Facebook, ex-Apple, ex-Uber, all of these types of things. We've built proprietary advantages. Second thing is we look at technology because that's our unfair advantage or one of our unfair advantages. And you want to ask yourself, if you're investing in this, that you have to believe in short-term rentals, you have to believe in the future of where this is going to go, but you also have to understand that what does this operator do or have that another operator cannot get? We've talked about scale. We've talked about technology. We've talked about our level of talent. We've talked about our first level aggregator of data. We've talked about our advisors that on with us. And coming to our last point of traction, this operator has actually proven it, right? Track record is oftentimes a great leading indicator of future success. And in our first fund, we raised 37 million. We had eight exits for between a five and a half and a six and a half cap already, even though we underwrite for between a six and an eight cap. And when you factor in all of those things, and then you look at the dynamic landscape of if I want to invest in short-term rentals, what are my options? You can do it yourself, or you can invest passively in an operator like ourselves. And when you look at DIY, you're like, maybe it's not the best thing for you. And then you look at the operators that you can go invest in. I encourage you to go find an operator with our track record, with our team, with our technology. And therefore, we've minimized the risk as far as we can. We've built a vertically integrated operating company and we've shared all these things. And we're always happy to share our financials and all the information of how we're performing. So when you're vetting us or if you're looking to vet us, I encourage you to ask all these questions. And we focus on education first. This is an asset class that we spend a lot more time on education than anything else because there's a lot of questions. You look at a question like seasonality. We have to explain to investors compared to multi, your quarterly check doesn't look the same every quarter. Why? Because we drive revenue in different seasons at different paces. And we have a high season and a low season. So you get much larger returns one quarter and a lot lower sometimes. So is that something you're okay with? So all these things are things that I would encourage people to ask. And then when we're analyzing the actual investment, right now we've vetted the operator. Now we're analyzing the investment. One of the common things in a fund, when we're investing in a fund with multifamily or something like that, we don't know the assets that are in it either. But in this one, but at least we would know, hey, they're all going to be multifamily type assets in certain markets. Here, it's a little bit harder to figure out, right? There's not a whole lot of analysis that we can do because we don't know where you're buying the properties or what kind of properties you're going to buy. Is there like a standard property type that you shoot for? Or how do we how do we go about kind of figuring out, is this an investment for me? And how do I dig into the numbers or pro formas? Or, or is it just kind of like, well, they seem like they know what they're doing. Let's jump in. Definitely not. I think what you're asking is like, do we have a generic buy box of things that we look for? And the short answer is yes. So generally, we're buying larger homes or bedrooms and larger because we don't compete with hotels. We want well amenity homes for larger groups. They drive better revenue. And we're never on a race to zero on price, right? Which is where hotels are. Secondly, you want to look at price to rent. So we aim for an 18 to 22% price to rent ratio, meaning if I'm buying a half million dollar home, I want it to do roughly $100,000 in revenue or better. We are looking at, we already know some of our core markets, so you're not investing totally blind. We know we're buying in X, Y, and Z, and all of these other markets openly. Places like Scottsdale, places in Florida, uh, places like the Poconos, Memphis, and some other markets. Now, we may open up new markets, but we tell you what we're buying and we tell you where we're buying it. The last thing you want to look at is this is a multi-asset blind fund. And the advantages of that is there's significant upside if you believe in the operation, but you're taking on the risk of not knowing what we're buying next. Therefore, a lot of your vetting of the operation and the business plan is very important. You have to understand, okay, I think that they can go execute this. And they've executed it. You know, Last year, we did 80 homes. They've done it not once. They've done 
not twice. They bought 80 homes. They're currently trending around these numbers and they're continuing to stabilize. Another thing that I find is a really leading indicator of being comfortable with the asset class, especially if an operator has a track record, is ask to see their previous reporting. And the reason I say this is good operators report simply, often, and really easy to understand information. And if you can understand it, it gives you an incredible leg up as an investor. In fact, I don't ever encourage anyone to invest in anything they don't understand. Seek to understand it on a very basic level. So in our case, they're buying single family homes, which are comp based on appraisals. They're going to sell them based on revenue, creating alpha. They're buying larger homes so they don't compete with hotels. They're well amenitizing their homes. They're professionally ran and operated because they have an incredibly good team on their side. They built proprietary technology. They have scalable advantages. These are all reasons where I can sit there and check a box and be like, yeah, you know what? I feel good about this. I feel good about this asset class. I'm a user of Airbnbs. I've stayed in one. I've seen a poor experience. I've seen a good experience. There's also AirDNA out there, which is the largest aggregator of short-term rental data. You can do some research. We share their data all the time. They're great friends of ours. And you can look at the, what market data is compared to ours. There is third-party tools that validate the success that we're having as well. Interesting. So in a lot of these funds that I've seen or Airbnb programs that we've seen, the syndications, there aren't a whole lot out there, but we've seen a few. And a lot of them offer, hey, you can go stay in the properties so many days a year or discounts or anything like that. Is that something you do? And if so, do you feel like you have to do it or do you want to do it? Because for me, it's like I'm doing an investment. I don't really need that benefit. Just talk about that, if that's something you do or not do it and why. We, we do. We call it owner stays and we offer it. And the reason we offer it is because there's no better person that can stay in our Airbnb than one of our investors who will take care of it, have fun with it, and enjoy it. Naturally, it's a benefit for everybody. Now, it doesn't harm the investment because all we offer, it's no free nights or anything like that. All we're saying is you can stay in it at market rate, but you can book direct and therefore save what you pay, you know, the platform fee on Airbnb on your side. We save the platform fee on our side. Therefore, it's the same net income to the investment that we would have gotten anyway. And so there's no harm to the investment. I will tell you that 99% of people get incredibly excited when we talk about owner stays, right? Because you, you have this fantasy of using the property. It's like, ah, that's a great perk. But like the gym, 99% of people don't use it because they're not going to Scottsdale. They're not going to the Poconos. In fact, one of our mantras, and I think it's the mantra of a lot of people in the syndication space is invest where it makes sense go everywhere else. I'm in real estate and I'm an investor in multi and storage and mobile home parks and short-term rentals, obviously, but I don't own any real estate myself. And people ask why? And I'm like, I don't believe in it today. I believe in owning income generating assets and I believe in renting or going wherever I want to go. I want that flexibility because my return on my investment is a lot higher in other places and other ways where I can generate higher alpha than the cost of me renting. Yeah, well said. I like that. Some of the other ones that I was talking about, the funds I've seen, is they don't do it the way... I like the way you do it. I don't like when they say, hey, you can stay a week, a year, and then if you don't use your benefit, you get this return. And if you do, you get that return. It's just too confusing. And then I feel like I have to use it. So yeah, I like this model a lot better. So I want to also go back to... You had said that you're a real estate company before a tech company. And obviously, with your background, you have a focus on tech. So how does your experience in tech and with Facebook and all that, how does that help TechVestor? I think when you look at our team and several of us come from tech, 
real estate is a dinosaur of an industry in many, many, many ways. <laughs> Airbnb is even way more of a dinosaur industry than we expected. I'm not talking about the platform. I'm talking about how hosts, owners operate their homes and what data tools they have access to. So when you think about solving problems, solving a problem for one home at a time isn't too big of a deal. When you think about owning 80 homes, all of a sudden, technology, software, insights, automated reporting, automated expense analysis, revenue management, all of these types of things, you're like, I'm doing this 80 times because I own 80 homes. How can I implement technology to solve for this problem or at least aid me in solving this problem faster, more efficiently, cheaper, whatever the outcome is? So given our experience in these fast growth tech companies in the past, we know how to build certain tools, and not only do we have the technology to do it, but we have the know-how on how to actually solve these problems using technology in terms of how to solve them. So being at Facebook when it was growing super fast, I mean, things were changing evidently every fast. Sabrina came from Apple where she built the first generation AirPods. I can assure you, and she'll never tell me, but I can assure you that that first generation AirPods wasn't the first thing that they built. I'm sure it went through iteration and iteration, sprint after sprint, and we can and they're solving a, a difficult problem, and that's exactly what we do, right? We're solving for scale, and once we solve something once, we don't have to solve it again. We can improve on it, but now it works, and that becomes an unfair advantage to the person who's doing it manually, who's gonna, you know, for example, look at expenses. I can tell you what our expenses are on a trailing seven day. Typically, books aren't closed for most people on at least a 30 to 45 day. And if you're using a property management company, good luck getting it done in anything less than two or three months because the property management company is going to deliver revenue and get send you your owner statement. And then you're going to have to go track your property level accounting, which they don't do because they don't speak to each other. And then you're going to need to educate your property management company on how to drive expenses down, but they don't care to drive your expenses down because they don't make any money by driving your expenses down. They only make money by driving you more revenue. So that entire flywheel doesn't make sense. Doesn't work. In our case, because all those systems talk with each other and we have a vertically integrated team, those systems make sense. That's fascinating. It's all fascinating. I really like this asset class and it seems like you have the tech side figured out, which helps you, gives you an advantage on the, all the other parts. So the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? You know, for a long time, I would listen. I forgot what Nathan's podcast used to be called, but Nathan Latka, he runs SaaS interviews with CEOs, startups, and founders. And they're like 15 to 20 minute bites of basically fire grilling questions of how did you do this? How did this work? What were the problems you had? How did you solve for that? And you can listen to three episodes on an hour drive or something along those lines. And the amount of information and more thinking that happens in your, in your brain that you start firing off with your own business, you're like, I can do that. And that's one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, that's great. I love podcasts like that but I have to somewhere to record all of my thoughts at the same time because it gives me so many ideas that I'm constantly like sending myself emails as I'm listening. Like, don't forget to ask this. Don't forget to do this. So that's a great recommendation. I'll check that one out. And then finally, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? They can visit techfester.com. They can request an intro call and an invite to learn a little bit more about what we offer. We are an education first community. There's a ton of resources there that we'd be happy to share with you. Again, we are only open to accredited investors uh, due to compliance but we would be more than happy to educate anyone on Fortune Rentals. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. As I said, this was fascinating. Learned a ton. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much, Jim.
If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably already thinking about ways to generate income passively and to reduce your tax burden. But did you know that you can retain more of your W-2 income by investing in oil and gas? As you might know, my income is generally passive, but if you're a high wage earner who still gets a large portion of your income from a W-2 job, this investment opportunity could help you hold on to more of your hard-earned money, which means you have the chance to make more passive investments. Billy Keels and the team at First Generation Capital Partners are experienced with investing in this sector, and they have a free download available for our listeners who want to learn more. To find out just how much you could save by investing in oil and gas, head to firstgencp.com slash LFI pay less tax and download your free guide. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48 equity.com backslash invest. Airbnb is a super interesting asset class, and it's been a struggle to find how to syndicate this. You know, we've talked to a few others, and they figured it out as well. And I think uh, TechVestor has it wired in all the tech that they put in it. I mean, it's in their name, so that, that helps. But having a, a Facebook and an Apple person, I'm sure, helps on the tech side. But the real estate first, which I like. They started as LPs, and, that, and that's where they kind of gained the experience and figured stuff out. And then found because he was living in Airbnbs as he was working for Facebook, he found the short-term rentals and asset class he was interested in. And I like what he said about, you know, you want to get in this stuff at pre-institutional, right? Before the institutions get in there and interviewing another Airbnb guy a few months ago, they said the same thing. Like you want to get in and find these niches before the institutional equity comes in and then you can sell to them, right? And you're not competing with them. So I really like that. I love how you're buying single family homes based on comps, but you're not operating a single family home as a rental to a family or even living in it. You're operating it as a short-term rental, which means you can maximize revenue, but you're not buying it as a short-term rental because if you had to buy it as a short-term rental and they valued it like they do commercial properties on cap rates, then you wouldn't have that advantage. But it's such a big advantage to be able to buy these single family homes based on the comps, but then operate it as an Airbnb business and make a ton more money because you're effectively getting those properties for much less than the income stream that it's going to provide you. So if you're just looking at what that income stream provides you, then you could have paid a lot more for it, but you're getting these cheap. And so that is the business model, right? That's awesome. And that business model, that delta or that difference is never going to go away, right? Because you will always have people buying single family homes to live in and selling them as single family homes. And if you're buying them for a different purpose, you have a huge advantage. And I don't see that changing. So that makes this asset class something that is uh, durable. And that's fantastic. And I liked how Asif said, make sure to see reports. And we say that too with all of our asset classes, right? When you're talking to a new sponsor, say, hey, give me some of the reports you've been sending out. And that's a great way so that you can gauge the quality of the reports. That'll tell you something about the investment. I would really like that he said that. And then he said that everything needs to be simple, often and easy to understand as far as the reports. And man, that was powerful. I mean, I know this is all basic stuff, but it's true, right? You don't want huge document that you got to sift. You want a one pager that just tells you what's happening, what's going on in simple terms and make it easy to understand. I absolutely, I just love that. And then one of the last things that he said is he doesn't own property, right? Other than the real estate that he owns through these various syndications. 
And I love what he said is he owns income generating assets. And here, I think the real estate guys a lot of times talk about this. Maybe you don't need to own your own home. You rent your home and, and you buy assets to rent to other people because you make more money that way. That's awesome. Own income generating assets. I thought that was pretty powerful, although that is what we do here at Left Field Investors. That's our complete focus. But he really took it to another level where it sounds like he doesn't own anything that isn't managed by somebody else or by his company. And those are all income producing assets is what he's owning. And that's fantastic. That's a goal for anybody and everybody. So that was an interesting podcast. I love hearing about a new asset classes. STR is growing huge and it's going to be around for a long, long time. And there's advantages that will stick through regardless of who gets into this market. So really excited to follow them as they go. That's it for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.